It's a privilege to be with you all today, uh, filling in for your pastor in his absence. And I appreciate the privilege of being able to share with you on this, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We'll mention uh, that, and I've heard prayers of thanks uh, that were already offered today. We'll have a prayer right now for illumination that the Lord will bless the words from his word. Dear Lord, we do thank you for this beautiful gift of uh, sunshiny and warm pre-Thanksgiving Sunday morning. We thank you for the gift of Jesus most of all. We ask that in the words that are spoken from your word and uh, explained, that they will point to Jesus, that they will guide us, Lord, in, in your word and way and encourage us throughout the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that the microphone that I'm hearing, or is that my heart? <laughs> so, uh, what do I need to do? Amazing. Okay. Well, um, the drumbeat of God's love is very much alive, uh, and may that be true in our uh, service today. One of the things that I've enjoyed uh, is, as a person now retired is the opportunity to spend extra time in studying God's Word. Uh, and as part of that, when I'm invited to, to preach, the first thing I do these days is check the um, liturgical calendar. It turns out that for hundreds of years, in a tradition that Southern Baptists have not yet tapped into, there has been a program of uh, the use of God's word in the pulpits uh, to be used in churches around the world so that in theory, every church that uses the liturgical calendar, no matter whether you're in the United States or where our son is in Hong Kong on the opposite side of the world or anywhere in between, all churches will be using the same scriptures. I like that in part because I've known too many Southern Baptist preachers and maybe there have been a Presbyterian preacher or two like this as well, who just have their favorite scriptures, and they'll tend to preach on those and do a wonderful job with those. They'll have their favorite books in the Bible, and you'll know, you'll hear a sermon from almost every verse from those books. And then you'll hear them again, and then you'll hear them again, and you'll hear them again. And those are great sermons and great passages, but there are 66 books in the Presbyterian and Baptist Bible and uh, many of those books do not get adequate treatment. If you use the liturgical calendar uh, as your guide for scriptures to use, you will hear from all 66 books. You will get something from them, and there, there's an advantage to that. More than that, in the liturgical calendar, you also have uh, themes, important central truths of Christianity that are going to be brought out. They will not be neglected. They will be emphasized. Now, um, we're in one of the turning points of the liturgical calendar on this particular Sunday. Prior to this, there's been, uh, there was what was known as the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time. Uh, there, there is a time in the, in the great Christian calendar when we celebrate different aspects of the life of Jesus. It's really built around the life of Jesus. Beginning next week, we'll celebrate the beginning point of Jesus' earthly time 
do that. That's amazing. I'll tell you what, what if I put it right here and we'll just see if that works. Okay. Um, so next week we'll start the celebration of the birth of Jesus, popularly known as Advent. We just finished the ordinary time thing, and so this Sunday is a transitional uh, service. It's where we celebrate the fact that that little baby who's going to be, whose birth will be celebrated in about a month, a little over a month, uh, is that same uh, one who is also king of the universe. And so this is king of the universe Sunday, where we celebrate the fact that Jesus is more than just that cute little baby. He is also the God who made everything in this world and keeps it all together and controls every part of it. That, uh, this concept of Jesus as king of the universe is not a new concept. It's not something that some recent born theologian came up with. This has been around since the very beginning. And where did we get the idea that Jesus was a king? Well, the answer is, first of all, it starts in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the great truths of the Old Testament, as an Old Testament professor, now retired, uh, one of the great truths of the Old Testament that I love is the fact that God is not only the maker of the universe, but he's the guy that keeps it all working right. He is still very much in control with, uh, of every subatomic particle in our vast universe and uh, every large construction, however large this universe may be, it's all made by him and it's all made to run perfectly because God is in control. The Old Testament concept of the one who is in control was uh, the word king and uh, God himself, the Lord, the Hebrew term Yahweh, is the king of all. Now, when Jesus was on earth in his public ministry, he made a number of shocking statements. These shocking statements played off of themes found in the Old Testament. So I'm going to start with an Old Testament passage, first of all, in this King of the Universe Sunday. It's found in the great book of Psalms, the, uh, the hymn book of, uh, of Judaism, and the hymn book of uh, the Israelite worship of the Old Testament. Psalm 99, verse 1, says this, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. That first phrase there in Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns, is actually uh, a translator's attempt to deal with a Hebrew phrase that doesn't work out real smoothly in, uh, in English. It literally says, Yahweh kings. That word king is actually a verb in the Hebrew, but we don't have that verb in our language, so uh, we say the Lord reigns. But literally, it means the Lord is, is current, Yahweh himself, and that word Lord is in all caps. That means it's the personal name of the Lord. Psalm 99.1, Yahweh kings. Yahweh acts as king. And then this psalm, as well as Psalm 97 and other psalms throughout the Old Testament, celebrate the fact that uh, the very God that Israel worships is the God who acts as king 
over every aspect of the universe and human society. That was a dominant theme in all of the Old Testament because there were many competing gods in the Old Testament. The Canaanites had a god of the wind. They had a god of the water. They had a god of the storm cloud. They had a god of disease. They had a god of war. They had many different gods. They had gods over particular regions of the land of Canaan where they lived. Uh, they believed in God, but really they believed in gods. And there was no one God that was in control of everything, but there were gods that controlled all the different forces of nature and, uh, and different aspects of human society. And so they would worship many different gods. But for the Israelites, they understood the truth. There are many forces in nature, but there's only one God who controls them all. They had a, a, an exalted understanding that we still affirm as Christians today that there is but one real God in all of the universe. And they celebrated that fact musically and in their lifestyle and in their prayers and their values and in all that they did if they were living proper lives for God. This concept that there was a personal God who had a name that name is uh, Y-H-W-H, often translated as Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, in, uh, in a reverent way, you might not want to use the personal name, so you just use the title, the Lord. But it's all that same Hebrew word. Now, when G uh, and, and that word, by the way, Yahweh in the Old Testament, is a word that uh, is, a, is based upon a verb, which means to be, to exist. So that when Jesus came to earth in his public ministry, one of the most controversial statements that he ever made is recorded in the book of John, chapter 8. John is having a discussion with religious authorities, with the PhDs and the THDs, the doctors of religion in the, in the religion of Judaism. And in this discussion that Jesus is having, he is talking about uh, himself. And uh, let me read a couple of things that, that come up in here. Uh, beginning in John chapter 8, I'll just read a little passage here, beginning in verse 52. It's in the middle of a larger discussion. But in the middle of this discussion of Jesus against the doctorates of, Ju of Judaism, the great theologians of his day, in verse 52 of John chapter 8, he says this. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death ever. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Even the prophets died. Who do you pretend to be? And then Jesus gets into the thick of it right here. If I glorify myself... Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, you say about him, he is our God. Jesus, first of all, calls God his father. That gets him into some hot water. He is the one who glorifies me. You've never known him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. Jesus is making some very controversial claims right here, but he hasn't said the most controversial thing yet. 
The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham, according to many chronologies, lived more than 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And so for Jesus to talk about his personal knowledge of Abraham seemed just totally unbelievable, just totally incredible, uh, non-credible to, the, to those who were hearing him. And so Jesus now says one of the most amazing things to be found anywhere in the, in the red parts, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible. Jesus said, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice the Jews' reaction to this. At that, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. Remember that uh, the, the Jews had laws in the Old Testament, and if you violated certain of those laws, you had to be killed. The normal way to kill a person uh, who violated one of the capital, who, created a, who committed a capital offense, who uh, had violated a very serious law of the Old Testament, was to stone them. Uh, and they did that because you were not supposed to touch human blood. You're supposed to, uh, and by killing a person through stoning, you didn't have to touch their blood. And so Jesus makes this comment, before Abraham was, I am, immediately he has uh, the death penalty imposed upon him. The people pick up the stones, the PhDs and the theologians pick up the, the stones and they attempt to kill Jesus for what he has just said. Well, what was it that Jesus said right there that was so offensive? Jesus said, I am. Remember that the Hebrew word for the personal name of God means to exist. When uh, in Exodus chapter 3, one of the great chapters of uh, the, the entire Old Testament, Moses meets God at the burning bush. And Moses has an extended conversation when he is called into service by God. Uh, and uh, Moses says, if you want me to, as, an, as an old man to go lead my people uh, out of the land of Egypt, first of all, I haven't been there for a lot of years, and so you're telling me you want me to go back to Egypt. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a wanted criminal out there. And God said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. But then Moses said, okay, well, if I do go back, and if I'm not immediately arrested for um, having killed someone in the past, no one's going to believe me. I'm an old guy, and I'm coming in from the desert, and people aren't going to know. They're not going to respect me. And if I tell them that, that you've sent me to, to help them, what, what can I say to give credibility? And what God said to him is this. Tell them that I am sent you. Tell them uh, that the God whose name is, means existence, God is the ultimate reality, tell them that I am sent you. And I'll even give you some signs to back it up, but, you, but the words I want you to speak are tell them that I am has sent you. And um, since that burning bush moment in the life of Moses, it was understood that when you use that phrase, I am, such as Jesus did right here, if you, when you use it like that, you are identifying yourself with the God who liberated the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. You are connecting also, the first use of that, 
that word, the personal name of God, actually goes all the way back to the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. That's where that word first shows up. You're, you're identifying yourself. If you were to say, I am, as Jesus did in John chapter 8, you're saying, I am the God who created Adam. I am the God who promised a land to live in for Abraham's descendants. I am the God who went, who led my people down to Egypt, and I'm the one who set them free from slavery to give them that homeland I promised them. The I am of the Old Testament is also the one who inspired the words of David to write the Psalms. The I am of the Old Testament is the one who gave voice to the messages of the prophets in the Old Testament. The syllables that came out of the prophet's mouth came from the I am. Everything in the Old Testament that is, of, uh, that is authoritative and provides hope and is of value for worship came from the I am. And now, in John chapter 8, 58, that little baby whose birth we will celebrate in uh, just a, a month or so is that one that also now claims to be the I am, the one who created Adam, the one who spoke to Abraham and promised him a homeland, the one who delivered that homeland to the people in the days of Joshua, the one who spoke all the words of the Psalms and all the prophets, this is the one that is standing before these people. It was a total shock, and you can see how that would be unacceptable to the theologians of the day. You're just a mere man. You're just a guy that was born in Nazareth, uh, or from Nazareth, uh, apparently born in Bethlehem, and you're telling us that you're also the creator of the universe and the one who made Adam. You're older than, you're older than Abraham. Yes, Jesus said, I am. And uh, that was an incredible statement by Jesus. Whom do we worship? Whose birth do we celebrate coming up uh, next month? We celebrate the I am's birth. Not that we celebrate the fact that, he, uh, that there was a time when there was no God at all in the universe and then he came into being. We don't celebrate the birth of the I am as he uh, came into earth, came into the universe as God was somehow created. Uh, but we celebrate the fact that the creator God who's always existed in the universe the one who was there from page two of the Bible, and really in page one of the Bible, uh, all the way down to the present day, that is the one that we celebrate. The one who made it all, cared enough to do the most incredible miracle, you could argue, in all of, in all of human, human history up to that point in time. The creator God of the universe became a little baby whose diapers needed to be changed, by a loving mother, by Mary. Uh, this is really one of the most important confessions of truth in all of the Bible. This Sunday, we celebrate the fact that the creator God of the universe, who, who, didn't, who doesn't have a birthday, who's always been there, and there never was a time 
in, in time or out of time, when God did not exist, that God gave himself a birthday uh, that we can point to on our calendars as human beings. He became a human being and was born. But when we celebrate that, let us never forget the fact that that God whose birth we celebrate is also the king of the universe. Interestingly enough, and, and appropriately, Jesus understood himself to be a king on two different levels. Not only is he the I am, whose uh, kingship is celebrated in Psalm 99, Psalm 97, and other psalms throughout the Old Testament, not only is he the king of the universe, but interestingly enough, he also chose to become uh, born out of all the possible family lines on the planet. God chose Jesus to be born into the royal family line of the Israelites. You notice in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, there's a very important little note, and uh, we'll look at that first verse of the New Testament. It's a good one to remember. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, and it sounds like just a little introduction. It's not the kind of thing you'd normally want to preach a sermon around. But it says this in my version of the Bible. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's the opening phrase of the New Testament. A lot of different things could have been used as the opening line of the, uh, of, of the greatest sacred scripture in all of human experience, the New Testament. But the one that was chosen by God to be used as the opening phrase, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Why does that matter? And how does that fit into the kingship concept? Well, it does. And you have to go back to the pages of the Old Testament where we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5 the story of David. At this point in David's life, he's a young man. He's 30 years of age. And, in, uh, and it says this, All the tribes of Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. King David, as he would be known from this point on, was the first of the great chosen line of kings, the messianic line of kings. David was the king of Israel that became the father, the, old, the, the primary ancestor for all the royal lineage of those who would follow. If we had a lot more time than we do today, we could see that you could not be the Messiah, you could not be the anointed leader of God's people unless you were born into the family line of, the, uh, of King David. For Jesus to be the Messiah from a Jewish perspective, for Jesus to become a proper king over all of his people, he had to be born into the family line of earthly kings over Israel, the only family line that God authorized to be king over Israel. He had to be Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, 
the son of David. That word Christ is actually a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, Jesus is a king on two levels. He is the king of the universe uh, because he called him as, if, if we trust the pages of the New Testament and accept him according to the teachings of the church, he is the king of the universe, but he's also on the earthly plane, the king of all of Israel. The closing thought that we need to bring this to is this. Jesus is the king of the universe. That's a fact. Jesus was, in his earthly days, the king of Israel, having been born into the royal family line of David. Opening verse of the New Testament affirms that. The, the question that we need to ask ourselves, though, is Jesus king of my life? Is Jesus my king as well? Proper Christian teaching requires personal decision. It requires each one of us not just to know the teachings of the Bible. That's a very good thing, that we know the teachings of the Bible and that we get them right, that the, the God we worship, the Jesus that we make as the Savior of the world is the one who is also the creator of the world. He is also the one who was during his time on earth, recognized genealogically as a member of the royal line of David. He was properly in the royal line. He was the king of Israel. But it's never enough to just know the facts of the Bible. We have to apply them. I encourage each of us in this room to make sure that Jesus is also the king of our lives today. May the Lord bless you in your pilgrimage with Jesus and may you know him as your king.